Chapter Two, Part Two of War Stories for My Grandchildren. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. War Stories for My Grandchildren by John Watson Foster. Chapter Two: The Missouri Campaign, Part Two. The culmination of this campaign is noted in a letter of November seventh. I have only time to write you a note to let you know we are safe in Springfield without a fight or loss of life. When we reached Warsaw we received our orders from General Pope to come to Springfield by forced marches with all possible rapidity, as the enemy were advancing upon us in force. So for four days we marched twenty miles every day, which was something unusual for any army, but our men stood it very well and are now much better for the exercise. When we arrived here we learned that Price was seventy miles away from us and that there never was any danger. Officers speak very disparagingly of Fremont. The indications are that we will march back again in a few days, up the hill and down again. Some time before the next letter was written from Warsaw, November 14th, on the march down the hill, we had heard of the removal of General Fremont. Our Missouri campaign has been a very barren affair. It may suit a fellow who likes long walks and heavy marching, but there has not been much of war in it. The only time there was to my mind any prospect of a fight was at Georgetown. If Price had ever intended to fight it was his best chance. We have been chasing him all through the southern part of the state on long enforced marches, wearing out our troops and spending immense sums of money, and Price keeping fifty miles away from us all the time. And he is now clear over into Arkansas. The Springfield campaign is over at least, and Fremont's reputation and our soldiers' feet have been the sufferers. However popular Fremont may be, his military glory is ended. Our Colonel Veach I regard as a man of unusual good judgment and has been an ardent friend of Fremont, and yet says his removal was just and needed, and such is almost the unanimous opinion of officers here. Tell father if he has not become reconciled to the removal a personal knowledge of matters at St. Louis and here would satisfy him. My youngest brother Willie was eight years old at this time, and I make frequent references to him in my letters. From Syracuse I wrote November 18th. We arrived here yesterday from our march of 250 miles. We left Otterville on October 29th and arrived here yesterday the 17th, having had only one day of rest during the whole journey. If I had time I would write Willie a letter, but you can tell him of our march, what a long line our division made, troops and trains of near three miles, what a time the poor soldiers had with sore feet, how we sat around big blazing campfires, how we got up before daylight and ate our breakfast on a log, and were marching before the sun was up, and give him a list of all the towns we passed through so he can find them on the map I sent him. About these things I can give him the details when I come home but this is only the least exciting of soldiers' life stories. We can't come home till I can tell him something about our experience on the battlefield, which we have not yet had. A week later I write still from the same place, expressing great impatience that we are kept in Missouri, and the desire on the part of myself and the men to be ordered into Kentucky. But I add, I am beginning to understand that the army is one vast machine, and the mass of us need not trouble ourselves about our future, as our generals will determine that. We have only to do our duty and execute their commands. But I caution my wife if we are ordered to Kentucky, you must not flatter yourself that if I get nearer home I will have a much better opportunity of paying a visit to the dear ones there. 
Then I entered upon a topic which seemed to be a familiar one in my letters about home. The commanding officers at St. Louis will be very particular about absence, and when we get into the active field again it will be worse. And it must be so if the army is to be kept in any state of efficiency. How much I would love to come home! No one ever more highly prized the blessings and comforts of a happy home than I, a dear, loving, and noble wife, a sweet, darling little daughter, and so many kindred and friends. But it must be otherwise. I am called to the place of duty away from all these. I would be a craven, a disloyal citizen, if I did not do what I am doing in this time of peril to our country. And I rejoice that I have a wife with a heart so noble, so patriotic, and so brave as to share this feeling with me, and who submits to her situation without a murmur. This pleasant home which you and I both long to enjoy together would be worthless and ruined if our once prosperous government falls to pieces. It is far better that we endure this separation, and that our country suffer this terrible war for a time now, than that we permit the whole nation to fall to pieces and for years and years after to see nothing but civil war and continued bloodshed between little factious states. We hope and pray that God will speedily restore the country to its wonted peace so that we may all return to our families and friends. A little later, in acknowledging receipt of one of my wife's letters, I say, I am glad you are reading Washington's letters. You will find he was a good husband and loved his home, but he went to war for seven years. While waiting in suspense at Syracuse, I tell of another court-martial. I was all day yesterday engaged in a court-martial and until late last night. A lieutenant in the 18th Indiana was arraigned by his captain for attacking and slandering him in a newspaper in Indiana, and the lieutenant came to get me to defend him. I tried to beg out of it, but he insisted so strongly that I had to undertake it. The court was presided over by the general commanding, and was composed of the colonels and other field officers of the division, and I was somewhat abashed in appearing before it, the practice of the court being altogether different from our civil law courts, and I being unacquainted with it but I thought I might as well learn now as at any other time. I think I got through with it pretty well. If I keep the lieutenant from being cashiered, it will be fortunate for him. The coming on of winter made the generals, as well as the men, think of winter quarters. In a letter dated November 24th, referring to another of the reports about a threatened attack on us by Price, and the probability of marching again, I write, In the meantime we are shivering around our campfires in this winter weather and stuffing our tents full of straw, blankets, and buffalo robes to keep warm. Last night I managed to sleep comfortably. I made my bed right down on the ground. It is warmer than to have my cot up on its legs. These Missouri prairie winds are such winds as Hoosiers don't know anything about. You ought to see some of the expedients we resort to for comfortable campfires. At headquarters of the regiment we have a big roaring log fire built and have small logs propped up on the forks of saplings for seats or benches. Then then we barricade ourselves from the wind a little by tents and stretching wagon covers around the saplings. But at the best this winter campaigning is not comfortable for officers or men. Notwithstanding the cold weather, I note in my letter of December 3rd that we are keeping up the drills. Yesterday and today we have been kept quite busy, General Pope having issued a strict order in reference to regimental and brigade drills. We are out both morning and afternoon with the regiment, notwithstanding that the ground has been covered with snow and it is very cold. It comes a little hard on us, cold fingers and cold feet, but it is all the better for both officers and men. 
As for myself, I am in much the best health when I am kept busy and on the march or move. This afternoon we had a review of the whole brigade, preparatory to an anticipated grand review by General Halleck, Department Commander, in a few days. It finally seemed settled that the Army was to remain in this part of Missouri, and we were to go into winter quarters. So our brigade marched down to Lamine River, December 7th, preparatory to a permanent encampment. I report. We will have a large city of log huts, probably 15,000 or 20,000 troops. We are commencing operations today by clearing off our camp preparatory to building our log huts. I shall be in command of the working forces of our regiment and shall soon know how to build a log house in the most approved style. So you see, I am having a varied experience in my army life. I seem to be quite possessed with the project of building our huts and getting into winter quarters as I was planning to extend hospitality to dear friends. I write my wife. How would you and little Alice like to come out and live with me in a log hut for a while this winter? If the little darling will learn to say Papa right sweet and right plain, maybe I will have her come out and see and talk with her Papa. That will depend on how long we will stay here, and how well I shall be fixed up. But you must not be certain of it, for a soldier's life is a very uncertain one. And sure enough, all our plans and anticipations came to an end, as a letter from Sedalia, December 21st, relates. After more than a week's silence, I have only time to drop you a note. The newspapers will doubtless tell you of our last expedition. We went out in a hurry and came back in a hurry. We just missed, by three hours' march, a rebel supply train with a guard of 3,000. But we succeeded in capturing an entire regiment with a full complement of officers and Colonel McGoffin a notorious secessionist, and a lot of other prisoners, making altogether about one thousand. There was no fight of any consequence. The cavalry surrounded them, and they surrendered after a short skirmish. The twenty-fifth was in the advance of the infantry, and would have been in the fight if needed. The only one of our regiment killed was Sergeant Ray of Company G, who was acting as a mounted scout. Our regiment was assigned as a guard to the prisoners, and will have the post of honor in conducting them to St. Louis. We will leave by train in the morning. I am very tired with guard duty and marching for two days and nights, and must be up early in the morning. This march proved the last of our campaigning in Missouri. Not a glorious record, but a lot of experience and useful training as soldiers. The regiment was assigned to quarters at Benton Barracks. I write, It is uncertain how long we shall stay here or what they will do with us. We may be all winter or possibly only two or three weeks. They have given the field officers of our regiment a little house just outside the barracks, four rooms, a kitchen, cellar, and attic for the servants, and a stable. If we can arrange things to suit us and it is agreeable to the other officers, I expect Colonel Veach and I will be sending for our wives. What do you think of it? A few days later I received her reply on which I made the following comments. You never wrote a more noble letter. I have read it over and over again. You could have written in a way which might have been more likely to have brought you over to visit me, but you could not have in a way more surely to make me love and admire you. I know how much you love to be with me and how much I would enjoy your presence. I have been thinking ever since we came back to St. Louis, seven hours by rail from Evansville, about the propriety of having you come over to spend a few days or weeks with me, and had hardly decided what to do about it. While in many respects it would be pleasant, in others it would not be. If you took up quarters with me it would be in a very comfortable room for a soldier, but not very comfortable or attractive for a lady. 
no furniture except stools, plank tables, and bunks with straw to sleep on, and soldiers' blankets and buffalo robes for covering. And then it would be in a house filled with officers, gentlemen, it is true, but not at all times pleasant companions for a lady. If you went with me to a hotel, I would have to neglect my duties, which neither you nor I would desire me to do. And even in my own quarters I could not pay that attention to you which I would desire without some at least apparent neglect of duty. There are quite a number of officers' wives here, and I know that they do not in any degree promote the efficiency of the service. When I decided it to be my duty to go into the army, I anticipated I would have to give up my dear home comforts and enjoyments, and when you gave your consent to my going, you so regarded it, and though we may both lament the necessity, we should not complain. I believe under the circumstances you will agree with me that for the present it is best that you should not come over. Will you not? When we returned to Benton Barracks, we found that gallant soldier General W. T. Sherman in command. I had only a formal acquaintance with him then, but years after we were near neighbors in Washington and became intimate friends. When at the barracks he was under a cloud of ridicule and was known throughout the country as Crazy Sherman. This appellative was given him because, a few weeks before, while in command at Louisville, he had told Mr. Cameron, Secretary of War, he would require 200,000 soldiers to rid the state of Kentucky of rebel troops. The sequel proved that more than the number had to be sent into that state before it was free of Confederate troops. Sherman was, at that period, one of the few sane men who realized so early the magnitude of the task before us. His memoirs, published years after the war, show that at the time he was much distressed at the appellative. Our stay at Benton Barracks was prolonged for nearly six weeks, and was the usual experience of such soldier life. In a letter of January 14, 1862, I write, It is now between eleven and twelve o'clock at night, and I am writing you while you are sleeping with our little darling near you, if she hasn't waked you up. You may wonder why I am writing you at this late hour. Well, I'm officer of the day for the barracks, and part of my duty is to make the grand rounds of the guard at least once after twelve o'clock at night. Rather than get a half-sleep and be waked up, I prefer to sit up and write my wife till the time comes. We were very agreeably surprised this morning to have Captain Willie, my brother, step in on us, as we were not looking for him. I am very glad he came. We will try to make it a pleasant visit to him, and he will be as much company for us. As I am officer of the day, I took him around with me as my orderly. When I visited the different guards' houses and sentinel posts, he was very much interested in seeing the guards turn out and the other military civilities. It has been very cold today. Both the infantry and cavalry were out for the afternoon drills of battalions and brigades. Willie stood out in the cold wind to see the maneuvers as long as he could. We have had a very pleasant evening at our quarters tonight. At dress parade, Colonel Morgan invited all the officers over to take supper with us. They came, about thirty of them, about seven o'clock, and at eight we had supper. We had oysters fried, oysters stewed, oysters raw, and oyster patties with their accompaniments, followed by meats, pickled pig's feet, and salad, and topped off with pound cake and champagne wine. You would hardly approve of the wine part, but we could scarcely do less at a soldier's supper. Very few would have stopped at that. Then those who smoked devoted themselves to a plentiful supply of cigars. In our regimental brass band there is a fine string band. I wish you could hear it, as I know with your love of music you would enjoy it very much. It gave us music all the evening. The officers got up a stag dance and enjoyed it greatly. 
Then we had some first-rate songs and wound up the evening by the officers presenting Dr. Walker, our regimental surgeon, in an appropriate speech by the Major, a beautiful medical staff sword, belt, gold tassel, and green silk sash, in token of a most faithful discharge of his onerous duties. About this time I reply to a letter from my wife regarding some domestic matters as follows. I was somewhat affected and a little amused at the account you give of your household and financial troubles. You must not let a little gas bill of fourteen dollars worry your life out of you. It is possible it was a little exorbitant, but none to hurt. I don't want you to worry yourself about these business matters. When there are any troubles, you will find your mother and father safe and willing advisers. I know that you are careful and prudent in your family expenses. I never thought you spent a cent unnecessarily. I don't want you to be thinking you are spending too much money. I just want you to get all you want to eat or wear. When I left home, I got you a good house to live in, and I want you to live in it in proper style and comfort. If I was at home, you know I would have broiled quail, stewed rabbits, roast turkeys, venison, all variety of oysters, and all kinds of good things for the table, and there is no reason why a lone, lorn wife should starve just because her husband has gone off to the war. If I was at home, I would have two or three gas burners going to your one, if I wanted the light. And there is no reason why my wife should grope around in the dark for fear of a gas bill at the end of the month. I know you are not extravagant, and therefore there is no danger of useless expenditure and no occasion for troubling yourself on that account. I have no fear but that you will save all the money you can conveniently with your family wants. I am drawing pretty good pay and therefore can afford to keep my family in good circumstances. Frequent reference in my letters is made to the way in which the Sabbath is spent in camp. In one of my letters I express the hope that I will not lose or forget my Christian standing. I want to come home as good a Christian at least as when I left, though the temptations to evil and bad habits are very great. Here is a description of one while at Benton Barracks. Another Sabbath day is nearly past, but before I go to sleep I must write you at least a short letter. Today has been a quiet and rather profitable Sabbath, at least more so than most of those which I spend in camp. In the forenoon Willie and I went to the First Presbyterian Church, expecting to hear Dr. Nelson. But after we were in and well seated, who should I see going up into the pulpit with Dr. Nelson but Mr. Blank, the home missionary agent who preached at Evansville last year? You will probably remember him. And he gave us the very same sermon today that he did then, verbatim. The text was the same. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid, etc. Having heard it before, I was not much interested in it, so that my visit to the city through the mud was not a very pleasant or profitable one. But this afternoon I read The Evangelist, the Presbyterian Church paper, all through, reading almost every article, and it generally interests me, occupying most of the afternoon. This evening I read several chapters in the Bible, the 60th of Isaiah, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of John, and my favorite chapters, the 14th, 15th, and 16th of John, and others. I also read two of the little books you sent us in the soldier's library. So you see the day has not been an entirely profitless one, but how much more pleasantly I could have spent it at home with my dear wife and child. But when I come back the Sabbaths will be the more pleasant and sacred with you, and we shall have an added pleasure in teaching our little darling holy hymns and holy truths. I had occasion often in my letters to thank the folks at home for the useful things and dainties they were frequently sending to camp. 
Correspondence shows that I was not bashful in making our wants known, as, for instance, this extract. You have written me several times asking what I wanted. Well, really, we don't want much of anything but our wives and families, as we are living very comfortably. But if you want to send us a present, you might send us a box or two of eatables. Say you bake us one of your good jelly cakes, and Mother try her hand on one of her first quality fruit cakes, and Eliza and Cassie, my sister and sister-in-law, see what they can do on a lady cake or something of that kind. And then if you have in any of the various foster families any extra supply of fruits or preserves or jellies or tomatoes or such like, you might send them by way of ballast. In one of my last letters from Benton Barracks I gave this account of the Sunday inspection. This forenoon I was busy at the barracks. Every Sunday morning when it is pleasant weather we have a general inspection. The troops turn out in the best clothes they have, with shoes cleaned and blacked, knapsacks packed and on their backs, guns brightened up and looking as well as they can. They are inspected by companies. Then the sleeping quarters, dining room and kitchen are visited to see that they are kept in good order, etc. This inspection is sometimes made by the general. When not made by him, it is made by the field officers. Colonel Veach and I made the inspection this morning, and it kept us busy till near noon. Our marching orders came finally as recorded in my last letter written from St. Louis at the barracks. We have been anticipating marching orders for several days, but have at last received them. Orders came from General Halleck this evening that the 25th Indiana would prepare to march to Cairo. The exact date of our departure is not definitely known, but it may be early tomorrow. It is quite cold, but we can stand it as well as any of this army. We are very willing to leave the barracks and to get into the field, and especially as we are going down the river and most likely will be sent to Paducah or Smithland. Barracks life doesn't agree with me near so well as active work. End of chapter 2. Recording by Philip Gould.